Throughout the pandemic, citizens might have suspected that components of the Health and Human Services Department weren't quite coordinated. Now the Government Accountability Office has put HHS leadership and coordination of public health emergencies on the list of at-risk federal programs. For why exactly, we turn to the GAO's Director of Healthcare Issues, Mary Dennegan McCauley. Ms. McCauley, good to have you on. Great. Good to be on, Tom. Thank you. All right. So why did HHS's coordination and leadership here in public health emergencies make the high-risk list? Yeah, well, it's not something that we take lightly, and it certainly isn't something that just came about in light of the pandemic. We looked at over a decade worth of work, and we really have seen some persistent deficiencies in HHS's ability to perform its role, leading the nation's preparedness for response to and recovery from a pandemic. HHS is a department, but it's many components, and you've got a lot of subcomponents that impinge on this, CDC for one, different pieces of NIH, as we learned, you know, in the pandemic, the infectious disease group, and then there's FDA has a role. Is this what you're talking about? Is it the coordination and the story getting out in some cogent fashion of what's going on within HHS, or does it also involve other departments? Well, for the high-risk designation, we are talking about HHS and those components that you spoke with. In particular, ASPR, which is now known as the Administration for Strategic Preparedness and Response, has that lead medical and preparedness response and recovery role that it needs to carry out. But it doesn't do this alone. Public health isn't done just at the federal level. It takes a whole of government approach. And so they have to work with their key stakeholders, including other federal agencies, as well as state, local, tribal, and territorial partners. It's a pretty big endeavor that they have to do. And what happened specifically during the COVID pandemic that gave rise or that showed in relief what their issues are with respect to leadership and coordination? Well, unfortunately, we found quite a few different areas and we're able to lump them into a few buckets. So if you take one of our first buckets is really looking at roles and responsibilities. You can't have confusion during the middle of a crisis. You have to be able to act immediately because every second counts. And you're not just talking about a hypothetical here. You're talking about lives. You're talking about work. You're talking about children being able to be in school when you're looking at a pandemic. It affected absolutely every aspect of our life. So being able to understand the roles and responsibilities and not bickering over them and trying to figure out who's in charge is really critical. And one one particular area that we saw that happen with was the repatriation, bringing our um, Americans home that were over in China or stuck on cruise trips is a great example where there was no clear leadership and CDC was looking at Asper and Asper was looking at CDC and pointing like who has responsibilities. And it really puts not only the responders at risk, but then the community. I mean, some people that should have been quarantined started to walk out into the community. So in addition to roles and responsibilities, you also need complete and consistent data. If you look at how our data is collected, it's very disparate. It takes all of those layers of the U.S. government, and it needs to be rolled up to get a national picture, and we just don't have that capability right now. So that's another area. And communication, right? We all saw the communication problems that were occurring. Wear a mask, don't wear a mask. Make sure that you get the vaccine. Don't worry, you're going to be 100% protected. Well, it's not really 100% protection. It stops you from going into the hospital. So you have to have clear communication in order to build trust. Transparency and accountability. I mean, if you you look at the arguments that are going on over just the origins of, of the COVID and does is there enough oversight of this risky type of research. I 
and being transparent about that oversight instead of keeping it in a black box, absolutely paramount. And then last but not least, understanding your key partners' capabilities and limitations, making sure that you know, for example, if the Department of Defense is going to come and help, what resources are they going to bring during the hurricanes Irma and Maria? We saw this as really a problem. They bought resources that HHS didn't need at that particular time. So that's key too. understanding your partners' capabilities. We're speaking with Mary Dennigan McCauley. She's Director of Healthcare Issues at the Government Accountability Office. And what about the idea of doctrine? I mean, if you look at the Defense Department, they have detailed plans and detailed operational, well, it's called doctrine, for if this happens, here's what we do and here's who does it. I've read over the years, as far back as the George W. Bush administration, there was a substantial, I guess the word nowadays they use is playbook, for what happens in a pandemic. And nobody could find that book or nobody paid any attention to it. It seems like that's a missing element also, is a master plan. Yeah. So, Tom, it's I'm laughing because it's the big question. What happened to the plans? Why didn't we follow the plans? Because we certainly had a lot of plans. And I've been at GAO long enough to have looked at those plans. You know, we started those plans when we saw bird flu um, coming about and worried that that was going to become a human pandemic. And Plans are only as good as they are tested, and the testing then reveals gaps, and you have to close the gaps, so that's first and foremost. But also, plans are full of assumptions, and one of the assumptions was that it was going to be an influenza, that you would have test kits available and ready to go for an influenza pandemic. This was not an influenza pandemic, and so our hope is that HHS, and we're going to continue to follow up on this, is look at some of the assumptions and look at the testing and look at the exercising and how they're going to revise those plans so that we're better prepared for next time and fill those gaps. And I guess GAO can't address this directly, but it seems that when there is this vacuum of leadership coordination and nobody knows who's supposed to do what, that leaves a lot of running room for politicians to come in and weigh in. And we saw that a lot during the pandemic, too. Is that part of the report or is that kind of just implied to the people you deliver the report to? I think that if you look at communication and you look at leadership commitment, those two come hand in hand with the work that we've done. You do need clear communication. You certainly don't want an administration or a head of an agency saying something different than another head of an agency. And so that's all part of what we feel is needed going forward is to make sure that you do have consistent communication that is clear and you don't have mixed signals because the public is not going to trust the science. They're not going to trust the politicians if there's mixed signals. Right, because large public health emergencies brew that kind of conflict that is always inherent in some of these things, and that is liberty versus individual choice versus what you need to do because you are part of a community, and there's no single dead right answer on that. But those are the kind of issues that get squirreled up when these happen. That's right. Absolutely. And it's particularly challenging, too, because we're not like some countries where you can just say, this is what we're going to do. We're going to lock down. You're not going to be able to move. We have states. They have independent rights. And so that communication becomes even more important when you have a constitutional setup like we have here in the United States. All right. Then what's the prescription here? How did HHS take the report being on the high risk list and the documentation of that? And what is your best recommendations for them to get off the list? 
Well, it certainly is not going to happen overnight, and I think HHS recognizes that. First and foremost, you don't have just one agency within HHS that needs to resolve this problem, and the agencies have taken this very seriously. You may have heard that ASPR is undergoing a realignment where they want to become a standalone agency to be able to be more nimble and to be able to respond more effectively. We're watching that transformation there. CDC has also said that they're going to undergo some reform, as is FDA. So we're watching all of these reform efforts very carefully. And as a part of reform effort, you also need to make sure that you have the workforce. And that's what we call building the capacity to make sure you have the right experts with the right understanding resources at your helm to be able to implement the changes that you want to do as well. And of course, you have to have leadership commitment. Without leadership commitment, it's all for naught. And we need to have sustained attention because as we've seen with changes in administration come changes with with the plans that are put on paper. And so really we need sustained attention, which is what we're hoping that this will bring. Finally, we need to have action plans. And while there are some broad plans out there, we need real root cause action plans to be able to get at solutions and milestones and the resources that are needed. And then of course, very GAO-ish, you have to monitor it and you have to track your progress. All right. Well, that's what I guess we need to know. Let's hope it doesn't happen again, a pandemic. But if it does, maybe we'll be better prepared now. Mary Dannigan McCauley is Director of Healthcare Issues at the Government Accountability Office. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom, for having me on this important issue. And we'll post this interview plus a link to the HHS analysis at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Take the Federal Drive with you. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in 
abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me, I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think 
you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort of I, the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. You that's know? <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.